Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, overprohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. I have three parts for you today. In part one, we'll review the latest news around Napoli. In part 2, I'll review our Primavera match against Sassuolo on Saturday. And in part 3, I'll review our Femenile match against Lazio on Sunday. So let's start with the news. The big story this week was the interview Lorenzo Insigne's agent Vincenzo Pizzacana gave to newspaper Il Roma, where he practically has a part-time job. The quote that the media jumped on was that Pizzacane claimed that De Laurentiis has offered nearly 50% of Insigne's current salary, what a lot of media didn't report is that Pizzacana also said that they are negotiating calmly, relations with De Laurentiis are excellent, that there is mutual esteem with De Laurentiis, and to paraphrase, it's normal for De Laurentiis to start with a lowball offer. All that people like Fabrizio Romano reported was that the offer was nearly 50% of Insigne's current salary. This goes back to what we spoke to Armando about when he came on the podcast, which is that the papers publish stories like this to bring Napoli down and to create drama around the club. I think that is exactly what's happening here and that's why I was so upset with Pizzacana for making these comments and frankly Insigne should be upset too because suddenly everyone's talking about it and turning it into a controversy. Like Amo said, these stories are taken out of context to push specific agendas. Pizzacana claimed that he made these statements because of the unfair treatment his client is getting from the media and fans, so in effect he was trying to clear the air. That might be true, but I think he could have achieved that without making specific comments about the wage offer. He said the media published false stories to the detriment of the player, the club, and the fans, which I find ironic because this story was published to the detriment of all three. Now, if we assume that Pizzacana is telling the truth, Dallarentis would have offered somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.5 million euros. That's definitely a lowball offer, and it's not the approach that I would have taken, but I don't fault Dallarentis either. 
This happens in all kinds of negotiations all the time. The buyer starts too low, the seller starts too high, and if they reach an agreement, it's usually somewhere in between. Now, I think most of us can agree that that was in fact too low, but there was something Pizakhanis said that I don't necessarily agree with. He was asked if the contract values are usually increased with renewals, and he said absolutely yes. Now, of course he's going to say that because he's at the negotiating table. He's certainly not going to say, oh no, sometimes they go down. But you can think of lots of situations where salaries are decreased upon renewal, and one of them is when a player has moved past his prime. Insignia has plenty of gas in the tank, but he's now 30 years old. He's still performing at a very high level, he's still the starting winger for the Italian national team, but you have to expect his form to start to decline and his body to start to break down in the next couple of years. Pizzacana also said to look at players that were renewed prior to Lorenzo, which I think is a reference to Dries Mertens' renewal, but I think there are some key differences there. The biggest difference is that renewal happened before COVID, so the club's financial situation was completely different then. De Laurentiis has made it abundantly clear that in the wake of COVID, we need to get our total salaries down. The other difference is that Mertens was increased to 4.5 million euros per season, which is what Insigne is already making today. What that tells you is that Mertens was underpaid prior to his renewal. Taken together, I think you can make the argument that Insigne's current value is somewhere in the range of 3.5 to 4.5 million euros per season, especially if it's a longer term extension, say 4 years. I also wouldn't be surprised if there were performance bonuses as well, and I also wouldn't be surprised if De Laurentiis upped his offer if we were still in the top 4 as we approach the end of the season. I know a lot of people are saying that there will be riots if De Laurentiis lets Napoli's golden boy leave, but I honestly don't think De Laurentiis cares. Marek Hamsik wasn't Napolitan, but he might as well have been, and De Laurentiis didn't have a problem letting him leave either. For now though, I remain confident that they will work something out before the end of the season. The last thing I want to say about this Pizzacana interview is that he said he was recently in South America, not America. That was in response to a story that representatives from Toronto FC were in Napoli recently, which spurred rumors that Toronto FC were interested in both Insignia and Mertens. Sebastian Jovinko's agent was in Toronto recently as well, and he too was rumored to a return, which ultimately never happened. Pizzacana said Lorenzo and another national team player are investing in two floors of a building in America. That put those rumors to bed, at least for a day. On Thursday, Gianluca Di Marzio, who's from Castellamare di Stabia, re-reported a story from Sky Sport that Toronto FC had made a lucrative offer to Insignia. They're also reporting that Napoli is offering 3.5 million euros per season, plus 1.5 million in bonuses that are difficult to achieve. That created another wave of reports that Insignia is going to Toronto, but if you read that article, you would see that there's actually not much there. I also tweeted about this, the highest paid player in all of MLS is Carlos Vela who makes 6.3 million US dollars which is 5.5 million euros a season and only 4.5 million US dollars or 3.9 million euros of that is in salary. Next is Chicharito who makes 6 million US dollars or 5.3 million euros, then Gonzalo Higuain at 5.1 million euros and then TFC's own Alejandro Pozuelo at 4.1 million euros. If I'm not mistaken, MLS reports gross salary while Serie A reports net and Serie A clubs pay the taxes. Insignia's current salary is 4.5 million euros net, which with a 45% income tax in Italy is about 8.1 million euros gross or 9.3 million US dollars. 
That means even if Toronto FC were to offer Insigne his current salary, he would immediately become not just the highest paid player in the league, but he would become the highest paid player in the history of MLS and by some margin. Zlatan currently holds that title. He made 7.2 million US dollars when he signed for Los Angeles FC in 2017. So nothing is impossible, but I'd be very, very surprised if Insigne went to play in MLS, at least at this stage of his career. Insigne is not the only contract that expires in June. Dries Mertens, David Ospina, Fauzi Gulam, and Kevin Malqui all expire in June as well. The club does have a one-year option to extend Mertens. Meanwhile, with the January transfer window around the corner, we've started to see links to a number of players again. At left back, there's Mazraoui, whose contract with Ajax expires in June as well. Alternatives include Empoli's Fabiano Parisi, Lille's Reynildo Mandava, who we've been linked to before, and Torino's Ola Aina. Mandava's agent, Manuel Tomas, spoke to Radio Marte this week, but my takeaway from that interview is that there are not any serious discussions. I say that because when Tomas was asked if he's spoken to Juntoli, his response was, let's not talk about the past, which means they haven't spoken recently. It sounds like Mandava would be a good fit though. Tomas said Mandava is good at defending, but he's not a left back, he's actually a winger, and for that reason he can play at fullback. He also said that Mandava is close with Osimhen, surely from their time together at Lille, and that Osimhen has spoken very highly of Napoli to him. Amidst all the rumors about Insigne not renewing, we've once again been linked to Sassuolo's Jeremy Boga, who appears set to leave the Nero Verde. On the outbound, Tuto Udinese are reporting that Udinese are interested in Stanislav Lobotka to play as a holding midfielder in Luka Gotti's 4-2-3-1. I'd be very surprised if this happened simply because we'll be without Angisa for the entire month of January. That means Deme would be the starter and Lobotka would be the backup. Even if you waited to the very end of the window and transferred Lobotka on January 31st, We'd still have potentially a week and a half without Angisa if Cameroon get to the semifinals of the Africa Cup of Nations. We also have a very busy schedule with Serie A, Europa League, which we're taking seriously, and the Coppa Italia, which for us commences in January. So we'll need three holding midfielders, especially if one of them gets hurt, which hopefully doesn't happen. Lobotka is one of 14 Napoli players currently representing his country on international duty. Lobotka played the full 90 minutes in Slovakia's 2-2 draw to Slovenia in World Cup qualifying on Thursday. He will be back in action on Sunday to play against Malta, but they are too far behind Russia and Croatia to advance, so hopefully he doesn't play. The same three Italians that won the Euros are called up again for World Cup qualifiers. I'm recording this before Italy's match against Switzerland on Friday, but Lorenzo Insigne and Giovanni Di Lorenzo are both expected to start, while Alex Meret will be on the bench. This is a massive, massive game because Italy and Switzerland are currently tied atop the group on 14 points, and only one team automatically qualifies. The second place team in the group will play in a playoff, where three of those 12 playoff teams will also qualify for the World Cup. Italy play again on Monday against Northern Ireland. Amir Rachmani played the full 90 minutes in a 2-0 friendly loss to Jordan on Wednesday. Kosovo play their final World Cup qualifying match in Group B on Sunday against Greece. Neither of those teams can qualify, so that's basically another friendly. Eli Felmas played 83 minutes and picked up two assists in North Macedonia's 5-0 victory over Armenia on Thursday. Macedonia play their final qualifying match against Iceland on Sunday. That's a really big match for Macedonia. They can win the group, but they could finish second and they do control their own destiny 
If they beat Iceland, they will finish second in the group and advance to the playoff round. Otherwise, they'll need Romania to lose or draw. Another team that has a lot to play for is Poland. They're currently second in Group I, three points behind England and two points ahead of Albania with two matches still to play. Piotr Zielinski is with Poland and will likely play in both of their remaining matches, first against Andorra on Friday and then against Hungary on Monday. Both of those teams are already pretty much eliminated. Hungary might have a very remote chance of finishing second, so I like Poland's chances of going through. Rounding out UEFA, Dries Mertens is with the Belgian national team. Belgium are currently top of Group E, five points clear of the Czech Republic and Wales, also with two matches left to play. A win against Estonia would win the group for Belgium, which would make their final match against Wales on Tuesday a formality. Mertens spoke about Napoli at his press conference with Belgium. He said he's very happy at Napoli and he didn't play much, not just because of the injury, but also because the team was winning. He said he's the first to say continue this way because as long as they are in first, he's happy. He added that he wants to stay at Napoli as long as possible and when they don't want him anymore, he'll decide where to go. Moving on to Africa, Kaladu Koulibaly played the full 90 minutes in Senegal's 1-1 draw to Togo on Thursday. Senegal had already qualified, so this match and their next one on Sunday against Congo are just formalities. Victor Osimhen is with Nigeria, who are not in the clear. They are currently top of Group C, but they're only two points clear of Cape Verde. They play Liberia on Saturday, which could win them the group if Cape Verde drop points. Otherwise, the group winner will be decided on the final match day because Nigeria and Cape Verde play each other on Tuesday. Frank Zambo and Gisa will represent Cameroon, who are currently second in Group D, one point behind Ivory Coast. They play Malawi on Saturday, and if they win that, they will have a huge showdown against Ivory Coast on Tuesday as well. Rounding out the Confederation of African Football is Algeria, who called up Adam Unas, who of course just recovered from his injury. That's actually quite concerning to me, but what can you do? Algeria got a 4-0 win over Djibouti and the team that they are tied with atop of Group A Burkina Faso drew Niger, so Algeria are now top of the table. Unas came off the bench in the 63rd minute of that match. That sets up a huge match on Tuesday to decide who qualifies and Algeria would advance with a win or a draw. Finally, we have two players competing in the Americas. David Ospina played in goal for Colombia's 1-0 loss to Brazil on Thursday. Conan Bowl qualifying is a little bit different than everywhere else. There's just one group of 10 teams who all play each other twice. The top four teams qualify for the World Cup and the fifth place team will play in an inter-confederation playoff. Colombia are right in the mix of things tied with Chile and Uruguay for fourth place on 16 points. Most teams have played 13 matches, meaning they have five remaining. Colombia play again on Tuesday against Paraguay. Last but not least, Chucky Lozano is representing Mexico. The third round of CONCACAF qualifying works similarly to Conimbol. There's one group of eight teams, so every team plays 14 matches. The top three teams qualify directly for the World Cup, and the fourth place team will play in the Inter-Confederation playoff. By the way, there are four teams in that playoff. The other two teams are from the Asian Football Confederation and the Oceania Football Confederation. Mexico are currently top of the CONCACAF table, but they play a huge match against the United States on Friday. The United States are currently second place. Then on Tuesday, Mexico play another massive match against my home country of Canada, who are currently third in the table. So that's the current state of affairs with our players on international duty. A lot of them will be playing in big matches for their country, so I wish them well. And most of all, I hope they all return in one piece. 
In other news, you might have heard a story that Diego Maradona Jr. was going to sue the club for using his father's image on the new commemorative shirt without his approval. My immediate reaction to that story was that the club didn't need Junior's approval because I read a while ago that Maradona's children did not own his image rights. This was a big story immediately after the passing of Maradona. Back in late November, early December of 2020, Reuters and Marca reported that a company called Satvika SA, registered by Maradona's former lawyer Matias Morla in 2015, owned the legend's image rights. Then in March, there was a story that Satvika was banned from using Maradona's image after two of his daughters, Dalma and Janina, accused Morla of fraud. But in August, French news outlet Agence France Presse claimed to have seen the 13-page decision of the National Chamber of Criminal and Correctional Appeals that ruled in favor of Morla. So having read that story, I figured Junior didn't have the right to approve the use of Maradona's image, Satvika did. Then this week, Maradona's friend and agent Stefano Cecchi came out and said that he actually owns the rights to Maradona's image and that he has a 15-year contract with an option to extend for an additional 10 years, signed by Diego and with the appropriate legal backing. He said the contract stipulates that 50% of the proceeds derived from the sale of Maradona's image will go to Cecchi and the other 50% will go to Maradona's heirs, which at the moment includes five of his eight children. The other three are waiting to be recognized as his heirs by the court of La Plata. It was via that contract that Chechi was able to sell Maradona's image to Napoli to use on the commemorative shirt. This is also what permitted the club to make a statue of Maradona, which would be presented prior to the Lazio game on November 28th. Chechi confirmed that the statue will make its way around the running track before it reaches its final destination in the dressing room. Chechi did also comment on Morla, but it wasn't very clear. He said Mr. Morla is part of the contract, but Chechi is one person and Morla is another, and that Maradona signed a warrant for both of them. So it's not clear to me if Maradona signed one document to grant both Morla and Chechi the rights to his image, or if he signed two agreements granting each of them the rights individually. In either case, I suspect there is more drama to come with this story. Finally, Napoli have partnered with MasterCard to help promote a new tap-and-go payment system that has been installed at select public transit lines in the region of Campania. You can already find images of Lorenzo Insigne tapping his MasterCard, which is the first image in the 18-month campaign. That will do for the news. In part 2, we'll review our latest Primavera match. Welcome to part 2 of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, let's quickly review our Primavera match against Sassuolo on Saturday the 6th of November. Sassuolo came into this match sitting 3rd from the bottom of the table, having picked up only 6 points through 7 matches. However, Sassuolo were in fine form coming into this match. They started the season poorly, losing 3 of their first 4 matches and drawing the other, but since then they beat Cagliari and drew Torino and Lecce, so they were actually unbeaten in their last three matches coming into this one. They also beat Spezia in the Coppa Italia during that run. Sassuolo are coached by ex-Napoli midfielder Emiliano Bigica. He played two seasons for Napoli in Serie B, first in 99-2000, then he went to Salernitana for a season before returning to Napoli for the 01-02 season. He made 17 appearances for Napoli between Serie B and the Coppa Italia. Meanwhile, Napoli were somewhat out of form coming into this match. We were eliminated from the Coppa Italia after losing in the second round to Cosenza. 
We followed that up with a 1-0 loss to Empoli, so the Azzurini were looking to bounce back. Frustalupi did have a full squad at his disposal, so with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Sassuolo lined up in a 4-3-3 with Joella Zaki in goal. Ryan Flamingo and Kevin Miranda started at center back. Eduardo Pieragnolo started at left back and Jefferson Paz started at right back. Andri Zenelai started in the center of the midfield with Christian Auchelli to his left and Salim Abubakar to his right. Asan Mata started on the left wing, Vincenzo Ferrara started on the right wing, and Luigi Semele started at striker. For Napoli, Nicolo Frustalupi made one change to the team he fielded against Empoli. As usual, he lined up in a 3-4-2-1 with Hubert Dasiak in goal. Benedetto Barba started in the center of the back three with Davide Costanzo to his left and Daniel Hisai to his right. Alessandro Spavone and Colisacco started again in the center of the midfield. Francesco De Marco started on the left side of the midfield and Matteo Marchisano started over Domenico Di Donna on the right side of the midfield. The front three remained unchanged as well. Antonio Cioffi and Giuseppe D'Agostino started as the two trequartisti in behind Giuseppe Ambrosino. So those are the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. For some reason Sport Italia only uploaded the highlights for the two Saturday evening matches which was this one and Fiorentina Atalanta. They uploaded all of the other matches in their entirety so I'm not sure what happened there and good luck getting any attention from Sport Italia on social media. Unfortunately that means I'm relying solely on the highlights and the live updates from imnaples.it for this review. The match could not have started any worse for us really, only 4 minutes into the match Sassuolo opened the scoring, Pieragnolo picked up the ball on the left wing and squared it to Ferrara in the area, he received the ball with his back to goal, laid it off to Mata and Mata gently rolled his shot past Idasiak and into the bottom corner. Napoli responded well creating a fantastic opportunity to score immediately after the goal, Chofi carried through the midfield before playing the ball out wide to Marquisano. He crossed the ball into the area and somehow it got through to DeMarco at the far post. He had the entire goal to shoot at from close range but he fired over the bar. He wasn't happy with himself but in fairness, he would have seen the ball late and he was hitting the ball on the bounce so the miss was somewhat understandable. After a few half chances at either end, Napoli came close to equalizing again. This time D'Agostino picked up the ball on the right side of the area near the byline and cut it back to Spavona at the edge of the area. He hit the ball first time with power, but Zaki made a fantastic save to maintain the Sassuolo lead. This was a back and forth affair with both teams creating and wasting opportunities. Ferrara had an excellent chance but he skied his shot over the bar. Napoli came back the other way and created a chance for Costanzo but his shot finished over the bar as well. We seemed to be having success crossing the ball into the area. Sassuolo were really poor at clearing it out. Napoli should have gone ahead from a corner kick just before the break. Trophy played an in-swinging cross into the 6-yard box that fell for Sacco in front of the goal but somehow from only a few feet away... He put the ball over the bar, so at halftime, Sassuolo remained ahead 1-0. After Sacco missed a glorious chance at the end of the first half, Sassuolo returned the favor at the start of the second half. Paz carried the ball on the right wing before playing a low cross in front of the Napoli goal. Samele got in front of Barba and all he needed to do was get a touch on the ball, but somehow he completely whiffed on the shot, so Napoli were fortunate to remain down by only one goal. With the rain pouring down, Napoli pushed for the equalizer. DeMarco slipped the ball through to Trophy, who made the overlapping run. He cut it back to Ambrosino who took one touch with his right foot at the edge of the area then fired on target with his left but once again Zaki was up to the task. 
Napoli did well limiting Sassuolo's chances to shots from distance, but they also came close to taking one of those chances. In the 72nd minute, Paz crossed the ball into the area. Barba won the header, but the ball fell for a Sassuolo player outside of the area. He fired on target from about 30 yards out, but Idasiak did well to push the shot over the bar. Things went from bad to worse for Napoli after that. In the 81st minute, Marquisano crossed the ball into the area. Ambrosino went up for the header and landed awkwardly on his ankle. He would have to be removed with what turned out to be a sprained ankle. I was absolutely gutted when I read this because the night before the match, Ambrosino received his first ever call up to the Italian U19 national team. Unfortunately, that injury prevented him from joining the national team but he is expected to recover ahead of the Azzurini's next match, which is on the 19th. Ambrosino was replaced by Antonio Pesce, and at the same time, Frustalupi replaced Marquisano with Dylan De Pasquale. Just when it seemed like the match was going to get away from us, Napoli shocked Sassuolo. Chofi played the ball to Spavone in the middle of the park. Spavone passed to Sacco and he played it out wide to another substitute, Domenico Didona. Didona cut to his left and curled his shot into the top corner with just about no time left on the clock. The official blew the final whistle moments later and Napoli walked away with a draw that probably felt like a win. Even though we dropped points, we remained in 7th position in the table. The top 4 teams, Roma, Fiorentina, Juventus and Torino all won, so they all pulled 2 points further away from us. Meanwhile, Empoli, Genoa and Inter all dropped points, so only 3 points separate 3rd from ninth in the table. The Primavera are off this weekend for the international break, but they'll be back in action on Friday the 19th to play against a direct rival in Torino. That will do for part 2. In part 3, we'll review our latest Femenile match. Welcome to part 3 of the Forza Napoli podcast. Next, I want to review our Femenile match at the weekend against Lazio. Lazio are a newly promoted club and they've really struggled in their first season in the top flight. They came into this match sitting at the very bottom of the table having not collected a single point through the first 7 matches of the season. In those 7 matches they scored only 4 goals and conceded 24 goals so their goal differential was already a whopping minus 20. So on paper this should have been an easy match for us but as we discussed last time we reviewed the Femenile we had three players suspended for this match. Paola Di Marino and Maria Awona both picked up red cards during the Sampdoria match and Sole was shown a red card for some choice words she had for the match official after the match. She was actually suspended for three matches for those comments. I co-hosted an episode of the Calcio Connection podcast with friend of the pod and Napoli goalkeeper Kelly Cavaro, and she said the scenes were pretty bad after the match. Apparently Sampdoria had to hop on their team bus and get out of there because irate Napoli fans were trying to hop over the fence to get to the official. We mentioned last time that general manager Nicola Crisano resigned after the match. All indications are that the reason for his resignation were for his involvement in this entire fiasco. So we came into this match missing some key players and somewhat in a state of turmoil. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Lazio lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Serena Natalucci in goal. Ludovica Falloni and Federica Savini started at centre-back. Camila Labate started at left-back and Nora Herum started at right-back. Virginia Di Giamarino and Antonietta Castiello started in the double pivot. 
Rachel Cuschetti started on the left wing, Francesca Pitaccio started on the right wing, Adriana Martin started in the number 10, and Noemi Vizentin played at striker. Alessandro Pistolesi made five changes to the squad he fielded against Sampdoria. He went back to a 3-4-3 formation with Yolanda Aguirre in goal. Hedden Corrado started in the center of the back three over the suspended Di Marino, and Sedia Bramson dropped from the midfield to start over the suspended Marie Awona on the left. That meant the only defender that remained in the starting 11 from the Sampdoria match was Emily Garnier, who started on the right side of the back line. The midfield remained largely intact. Sofia Colombo and Saratui started again in the center of the midfield. The one change was Ariana Akuti, who started on the left side to fill in for Abramson, while Kaya Ertsen started again on the right side. Eleonora Goldoni started again on the left wing, and Martina Tognolo started over Madalena Porcarelli on the right wing. Finally, Depi Chatsi Nicolau returned to the starting 11 to play at striker with Sola suspended as well. So those were the starting lineups. Next, let's get to the match. This was a wild back and forth affair, but Napoli definitely had the majority of the opportunities to score. We got our first chance to score only three minutes into the match. Goldoni won the ball near midfield, touched it onto Colombo, and she played Akuti through on the left side of the area. Akuti timed her run perfectly to stay onside and took a good first touch to set up the shot on her left, but Natalucci was well positioned to make the save. Only a few minutes later, Akuti played a gorgeous long ball to Tognolo, who took the ball down really well, sidestepped Savini and slipped the ball through for Depi. Depi made a great touch to split Faloni and Labate. She had only Natalucci to beat, but the keeper guessed correctly and made her second big save in under 5 minutes. Saratui played an in-swinging cross on the ensuing corner kick. Goldoni won the header, but the shot finished just wide of the far post. The way the match started, it seemed like it was only a matter of time before we got our goal, and that goal came in the 11th minute, with Napoli once again winning possession high up the pitch. Colombo intercepted Labate's pass intended for Martin, and the ball fell for Tognolo. She played Kaya into the area. The Slovenian international took one touch to control the ball before firing a rocket just inside the far post. Natalucci was never going to stop that shot. That was Kaya's first goal of the season, and it was well-deserved. I thought she was our best player in that unfortunate loss to Sampdoria. Kaya was actually on a program called Campagna Like on Facebook, which is a show dedicated to getting to know the region. The club has agreed to do four 15-minute player interviews, which are very light-hearted, and they're a fun way to get to know the players a little bit, so be sure to check that out. Back to the match, the lead didn't last very long. Only four minutes later, Lazio equalized from the penalty spot after Abramson fouled Vizentin in the area. I'm not sure there was a whole lot of contact there. It was difficult to tell from the camera angle. However, just before going to ground, Vizentin clearly had her shirt pulled by Corrado, so I think the penalty was probably a fair decision. Martin stepped up and converted the penalty, shooting straight down the middle of the goal to make the score 1-1. Only three minutes later, Lazio took the lead, which was shocking considering that they've only scored four goals in the entire season heading into this match. Lazio played a long ball into the Napoli half, which Corrado did not handle very well. She had the ball straight to Vizentin. Garnier shifted to the middle to help defend Vizentin, which is the right thing to do in that situation, but it left the left wing open for the late run of Cuschietti. Vizentin picked out that run, and Cuschetti hit the ball first time, curling it around Aguirre and into the back of the goal. 
Corrado's clearance was poor, but I don't blame her at all for this goal. I don't blame Garnier either. You intentionally give up that shot because 99 times out of 100, it's going to miss the target. It just so happens that this was the one time the ball found the back of the goal. Hats off to Cuschetti. That was just a gorgeous strike. Lazio nearly doubled their lead moments later. Vizentin chased the ball down into space and took on Corrado 1v1. Corrado was a bit unfortunate because she tackled the ball, both players went down, and Vizentin was just quicker to hop back up to her feet. Fortunately for Corrado, Aguirre was quick off her line and made a really important save from close range. Napoli came right back the other way with Toniolo playing a perfect long ball over the top to Acuti. Her first touch was perfect, she took the ball down and dribbled past Natalucci all in one motion. Unfortunately, her second touch was really poor. She had a wide open goal to shoot at, but the shot was with her weaker right foot and just missed the target. We had all of that action and we were just past the midway point of the first half. The back and forth continued with Napoli once again conceding possession in our own end. This time it was a Bramson who lost the ball to Castillo, but her shot finished wide of the far post. After a few half chances at either end, the whistle blew to end the first half, with Lazio ahead 2-1. Napoli came out strong to start the second half, and less than 10 minutes into the half, Goldoni scored the equalizer. This goal was actually named the goal of the week, and rightfully so. Goldoni fired from about 25 yards out to beat Natalucci. If I'm being honest, I think Natalucci could have done better there. She put herself in a position to make the save and got a hand on the ball, but it wasn't strong enough to keep the shot out, but this was still a great shot. That was Goldoni's third goal in all competitions, two in Serie A and one in the Coppa Italia. Moments before the goal, Pistolesi made a triple substitution. He replaced Colombo with Ilaria Capitanelli, Toniolo with Emily Kunrath, and Depi with Maddalena Porcarelli. I have to say, I was a little bit surprised by those changes because Colombo and Toniolo were two of our best players in the first half, and Depi was probably our biggest attacking threat, especially with Solon not available. So with about half an hour left to play, the score was all tied at 2 just like Lazio came close immediately after scoring their second goal, we came close immediately after scoring our second. Capitanelli played in a low cross from the left wing that somehow rolled through four Lazio players to get to Goldoni at the penalty spot. She hit the ball first time with her off foot, but the ball struck the upright and stayed out. Five minutes later, the pendulum swung back the other way when Lazio were awarded a second penalty of the match. Now, I didn't have access to the match live, so I was just tracking the updates on the team's Twitter account. And when I saw a second penalty awarded to Lazio, I couldn't help but say to myself, not again. In the previous match, we had two players sent off and one of those red cards was very dubious. Then I see Lazio awarded two penalties in this match. In fairness though, having seen the highlights, I think both were the correct decision. On the second penalty, Corrado fouled Vizentin. It was hard to tell on the camera angle whether Corrado got the ball or the player. Corrado seemed pretty adamant that she got all ball, but the official was in a good position to make that call. Martin stepped up and scored again, this time sending Aguirre to the right and shooting to her left. So that put Lazio ahead 3-2, but there was plenty of drama remaining. Only three minutes after Lazio's penalty, Napoli were awarded a penalty of our own. For me, this was actually the most controversial of the three penalties. It started with a Napoli corner kick. The ball bounced around a little bit before falling to Harum. She appeared to control the ball with her chest to dribble out of Lazio's area, but the official deemed the ball hit her hand and awarded the penalty. 
Goldoni placed her shot into the bottom corner to tie the game for a third time. Napoli continued to push forward and came close to going back ahead with one minute left to play. Kaya made a great play to save the ball and cross it into the area. Goldoni won the header at the top of the six-yard box, but the ball finished just over the bar. Then just when it looked like this match was going to end in a draw, Porcarelli scored her first ever goal in Serie A. Saratui played in a low cross into the area. Dijamarino went to ground looking for a foul, but it wasn't given. That left Porcarelli free to shoot from close range, and she blasted the ball into the top corner of the goal to give Napoli the lead. So clearly Pistolesi knows better than I do because Porcarelli was one of those three substitutes that surprised me. That goal was scored in the 93rd minute and two minutes later, the official blew the final whistle. This was a huge win for us, both in terms of the table and in terms of team morale. I talked all about that controversy and drama after the loss to Sampdoria. That really unsettled the team, so this was a big win to restore the team morale, especially with how it happened. It also restored order at the club. A few days after the match, the club announced the appointment of Marco Zingauer as the new general manager. He was previously the general manager of Florentia San Gimignano before they were taken over by Sampdoria. President Carlino presented Zingauer to the players and the coaching staff on Tuesday, and he seems like a great fit for the club. The club statement said that Zingauer is a labor lawyer who was awarded an honorary Artemio Franchi degree for his thesis on sports work in amateur football. He was one of the founders of the Centro Storico Lebowski in Florence, which was one of the first joint stock cooperative sports clubs in Italy. But in recent years, he has decided to dedicate himself entirely to women's football. Back to the game, Pistolesi couldn't help but smile after the match. For me, this was a must win if we wanted to have any chance of surviving. It also helped that just about all of our direct competitors lost this weekend. Empoli lost 1-0 to Milan, Pomigliano lost 4-2 to Sassuolo, Hellas Verona lost 5-1 to Roma, and Sampdoria lost 1-0 to Juventus. The other match was Fiorentina-Inter, which Inter won 3-2. That was actually another wild match. Inter scored twice, including a beautiful volley from Flaminia Simonetti. Fiorentina had a player sent off right before the break, but their star player Daniela Sabatino scored a second-half doppietta to make it 2-2, only for Inter to win it in the 93rd minute. After those results, we're still third from bottom of the table, but we're now level with Empoli on points, only two points behind Fiorentina and only three points behind Pomigliano. We've got Sassuolo up next, which is a really tough match, and then after the international break, we have a huge match against Empoli. So that will do for this review. That will also do it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and leave us a rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod. I'm going to take a short break, but I will be back next week to preview our big match coming up against Inter. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti. Forza Napoli sempre! Sports Social Podcast Network.